gallery of pictures There's scenes that are painted from life Scenes of youth and of beauty Scenes of hardships and strife Scenes of wealth and of plenty Old age and a blushing young bride Hang on the walls, but the saddest of all Is a picture from life's other side A picture from life's other side Somebody has fell by the way And the life has gone out with the tide That might have been happy someday Some poor mother at home Is watching and waiting alone Longing to hear from her loved one so dear That's a picture from life's other side Hey everyone, Nathan Freitas, Nate Freight here, Guardian Project. Welcome to the latest episode of the Enguard podcast. Today we're going to be talking about our latest efforts on tech for workers, you know, the everyday activists, people that are just trying to get a fair wage, um, you know, good hours to work, things to support their family, ways to support their family from a job that um, has a future and isn't exploiting them. And I think this is a, a key issue of our time given the pandemic, given the rise of the gig economy and the sort of exploitation of workers in large kind of warehouses more and more through technology that is surveilling them and tracking them and trying to turn them into sort of measurable, quantifiable automatons when in fact they're human beings um, with flesh and blood and hearts and brains and a past and a future and a family. So I'm really honored to be doing this work and supporting really the everyday activists that are in our lives, all of our lives around us, and looking at how we can use mobile technology to empower people, use data and collectivize aggregated data and data science to really benefit those who right now seem to be most negatively impacted. So listen on to learn about WeClock and how mobile technology might benefit those who need it to give work a reality check. Christina, Dr. Christina Kokluf, and Dr. Johnny Penn. Yes. Dr. Yes, Johnny. Yay! Uh, <laughs> wow, I'm I'm behind the, the honorifics. Uh, but it's great. Um, man, and we're connected through multiple time zones here and uh, around the world in our work for workers. I think on the podcast today, and this is welcome to the NGARD podcast. Um, I just wanted to take a chance with the team that, you know, my colleagues here who have worked with us at Guardian Project and OK Thanks on um, a new app we just launched, a program, a vision around helping workers through technology and data and empowering them really to take control. Um, and I wanted to share and discuss some of our own personal motive motivations and why we do this work because I think with Guardian Project people 
see us as privacy and security and technology. Um, maybe they know some of my background in human rights work. Um, but they don't also necessarily know some of my connections to migrant labor in California, you know, family. Or they don't understand some of the work I've done with um, labor organizing groups in over 20 years with technology. And they don't, you know, connecting the dots between like the everyday activist and privacy and security tools sometimes we need to do this more and say, yeah, when we say activists, we mean, you know, maybe your cousin or your mother and father or your, you know, friend who's working a job where they're being, you know, taken advantage of um, and not this kind of picture of an activist that is someone throwing a, you know, fist up with a bandana on the street, though we love that too. But sometimes it's someone going to work and tying a bandana around their hair while they're preparing food. What do you think of that? Is that is that right on? Or what brings you to this work, Christina, beyond, you know, the grant we got to build it? What uh, brings you to helping workers through technology? Yeah, and uh, thanks, Nate. Uh, it's just, I just really want to say to everybody how mind-blowing it has been to work with Johnny, Nathan, and the team on this. How you can take an idea that was formed between us and with a group of, of friends and advisors, and then see it materialize. I mean, for me, yes, I work on the ethics of AI, on data governance, but I have really learned you know, what is actually possible to develop. I mean, there's things that us ordinary people, we can't even imagine is possible. And yet, meeting you, Nathan, and, and the team, you know, my, my mind, it's like new windows that have been opened in my brain that I never knew existed. So what a mind-blowing trip it's been the last uh, year and a half or, or more, mm. actually. But what brought me to this? So from my perspective, I'm a trade unionist. I've worked for the, the global union movement and had a series of events that sort of all mismatched into both a chance but also some some really meant to be circumstances. And, and one of the main ones was I was beginning to look into this whole thing around data, data governance, and understanding the future of work and the digital world of work. And at the same time, was fortunate to give a number of speeches on this to, to young people, young workers across the world. And what really kind of hit me and and touched me and saddened me, to be honest, was that a lot of these young workers were disillusioned. They were, the robots are coming, there'll be no jobs, democracy sucks, nobody's listening to us. And, and really uh, fundamental um, disbelief in the future. Uh, but what was even harder was when I then asked them, okay, I hear you, uh, and what are you going to do about it? These, these young people had very few answers. So all of that then combined with me meeting Johnny at an event in Brussels where we, by chance, you know, started talking and from there started exchanging ideas. And then we got the opportunity to get this grant. And, of course, the first person I asked to join me on this was Johnny. And, and luckily he wanted to, and he then introduced me to you, Nate, and, and all of the other great people at the Berkman Klein, Harvard's Berkman Klein, the MIT, and, 
and so forth. So it's been something that almost had to happen. It was like handed to us on a plate for us to take the responsibility to actually do something about it. And before I, I, I end for the minute here, Nate, you know, the, the main concern we had in the beginning, which I think we've fulfilled, is how can we use the potentials of technology but to do good and to address this disillusionment or disillusion of, of the young people and to take seriously the work-life experiences they have. And this is, you know, a really important thing that tech is not born evil. And it's not born good either. It's what we make of it. And um, I think uh, from from those thoughts in the beginning to the end product here, I think we've done really well. Yeah, and and keeping that worker, the personal, real, lived stories uh, and challenges, and that they have, be it you know they were told they'd be doing one thing, yet they're doing something else entirely yeah. different at work, and yeah. or they're being asked to be on call all the time via their phone or they are working in a dangerous situation because there's not personal protection equipment. And, and uh, there's so many things that are real stories that we've tried as hard as we could. And, and, and to keep the focus on what is the thing that all of this technology is doing and answering and what is the question and that, you know, we've had folks like Mary Gray and, the events, you know, that you've organized, Johnny, and outreach to Berkman client folks as, and others to say, you know, what do, what do we need to do to be successful? And, and the, you know, saying that this had to happen, I mean, you know, five years ago, we prototyped some similar ideas with a very tiny budget, um, but that we all, my team felt really passionate about with, with migrant um, farm workers in the U.S. South, and we were so badly wanted to do this, but there just wasn't the team at this small legal services group. There wasn't the funding. There wasn't kind of the bigger thinking. And so we were just waiting for someone to come around um, that could fulfill all of that and, and fulfill all the other things we didn't know. And I think this this combo has been that. It's made me happy. Again, you know, my, my father uh, was a young child child migrant farm labor in California, you know, more as a summer job thing, but our other um, cousins and, and extended family who actually have, uh, as adults and, um, you know, Mexican Americans have worked in California as migrant farm labor. Um, this is something like I know directly and personally and, and, you know, and no, it was always hard for them. Um, but also was around, you know, people organizing with Cesar Chavez and that movement. So this is something that I, I, I am, you know, privileged to have been born in the next generation where I didn't have to think about that and do that. But the people that came before me, it was you know part of their lives. So, um, but Johnny, what did you think when we met or what? I mean, we had so many crazy ideas early on about data and, you know, Uber and AI and all these things. How did we? manage to pare that down into something like that we could implement and ship and humanize because I know I love getting crazy with tech as well. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I think I came to this project um, through years of working with young people and 
at the time, just before Nate, you and I had had those initial conversations, had been working in Brussels with uh, the European Youth Forum, which is the largest youth advocacy group in Europe. They represent 20 million young people and fight for things like decent work uh, and uh, do that at a, at, at, in the European Commission and uh, uh, European Parliament and, you know, the highest parts of European politics to actually try and affect change. So it's not just it's not just kind of hollow advocacy. They really do um, try and make conditions better. And I had been working on a report for them and as part of this Google Fellowship um, looking at how emerging tech would change young people's lives and had been thinking a lot about the gig economy and how difficult uh, unionizing is in the gig economy. And I remember Nate meeting you at the Media Lab at MIT once, probably in early 2018, and we were talking about uh, your work that you'd done with the, the migrant community you just described and thinking through uh, the, the words that come to mind are uh, like a digital condom or like a digital basically that i should explain that uh the idea being that like some sort of uh digital intermediary that would protect a gig economy worker the way that a union would if there was a person standing there advocating for them um but you know maybe maybe it monitors the the streams of data that uh you know a rideshare company uh harvest and then gives that worker access to that data uh, or it or it intervenes and says, hey, uh, do you know that you've worked, you know, 14 hours today uh, or just kind of analyzes it according to the workers values. Um, and from that, there were many, many conversations, lots of co-design through Christina, who, who knows uh, has deep ties into the union movement and to the workers themselves to help inform from their perspective what, you know, we were trying to echolocate from a kind of. Uh, technological level, like what would be possible uh, with co-design. I think it just got closer and closer to where we've where we are now with WeClock, which is something uh, uh, along the similar lines of using personal data to kind of understand your work life better and be able to articulate your conditions in a medium that um, people seem to trust increasingly in a very digital world. And I appreciate Christina how you said your mind was blown about what's possible. And, Mm -hmm. you know, on on the one hand, I think back to, I learned a lesson early on in the nineties when, when Napster came out, because I was working on in, in, at school and university, I was working on kind of a similar system. Um, You know, the architecture wasn't that complicated with um, Napster, you know, a bunch of people were working on kind of these like ways to network PCs together and do interesting things. I was working on with kind of this crazy grand vision with an artist of like virtual reality and all of these things. But they just said, hey, we can use this to like share music. You know, like they took a very important thing that people wanted to do, like trade Grateful Dead concert recordings or trade, you know, rip their CDs and like share music um, with friends because, you know, they were poor and couldn't get music. It was like a very fundamental thing people wanted to do. And they said, oh, yeah, the tech could do that. And they, sh- they just took this tech and shaped it to a need. And that's something that like I've tried to keep centered on um, because I often inherently miss that point <laughs> um, if I don't. Um, but then at the same time, you know, we've we've hit limitations with the tech in this project. I know we really wanted to measure temperature. And it turns out that like phone temperature sensors are 
not common, the, the good kind that can actually measure the temperature of the air and not just the phone. Um, you know, uh, sound monitoring is actually quite hard, though maybe on the Apple Watch it's better. And we definitely hit real limitations on the tech versus what we thought it could do, you know. Um, so how do you feel about that sort of promise, peril, you know, reality versus, um, yeah, I mean, it seems like you're still quite positive on the impact of technology, even though you've, we've faced some of those real limitations. Yeah, that's another, it's another really good question. Am I positive? Well, yes, in principle, but no, uh, right now, and mainly due to the lack of political governance, the lack of will to say, okay, tech is not born good, it's not born evil, therefore we need to, to put frameworks and governance and, and some decency around this, right? And, you know, I, the way the world is right now, the tech world is right now, where a lot of power is in the hands of very few companies at the detriment of citizens, small and medium-sized companies, and even our governments, and and I can go that far and say democracy, then, yes, WeClock is a little app. It's something that we worked on with all our hearts and souls. But actually with, with what it stands for is, you know, a means to fight back on just a corner of all of this. It is like, okay, they are taking this data from you anyway. Now, Google Maps, Fitbit. Whatever app you have on your smartphone, the smartphone owners, your tel telco provider, and all of this, they have this data. So why don't we also get it so we can use it to tell our stories as workers so that the young workers who, and this is something we, we must not forget, their work life, which is so precarious, individualized, short-term contracts, gig economy, for the majority of workers across the world, young workers, their working life is so different from the generations before them that we have to listen to them to really figure out what are their conditions, their dreams, their aspirations, uh, but what are they confronted with in reality? And through WeClock, with the data, begin to tell the workers' story. So, yeah. yeah you know, We have a point of view with WeClock, and that's, I mean... <sighs> A lot of the work we've done in privacy and security doesn't have a sort of, I mean, the ethics we have are of privacy, that privacy, more privacy is good in power people's hands, but people can use it for all sorts of things, right? And so someone, you know, embezzling money or doing harmful things can use encryption to protect that. And that's something we kind of have to live with and push back against. What I love about working on WeClock is it, it has this real point of view about what it's for and who it's empowering and how it's designed. And we've thought about a ways it could be abused or used against worker and tried to mitigate those. So I really, I've really enjoyed this project because we're bringing sort of an ethics and point of view and opinion to like what we're doing and why that's very timely. Yeah. And I think, you know, uh, we have plans of, of how we can improve that. We have, you know, we're looking into to regarding the data as ephemeral, you know, it disappears to really embody the principle of data minimalization, right? Uh, there's lots we can do if we get more funding so we can continue to develop WeClock ar around, you know, protecting the integrity of the individual and at the same time improving how unions or collective groups of workers 
can benefit from one another's data, but with the privacy uh, at heart, right? So, so it, you know, it's. It, I think what what I really took from this project is we have to walk a very conscious line. What are the trade-offs? How far are we willing to go to give data or to give workers that kind of data? Uh, yet, at the same time, we don't want to become just another app that monitors and surveys them um, constantly. So, you know, we've been nudged and pushed to find the right balance there. And I think as this first version of WeClock, first public version, that we've, you know, we're on the right track. So you might have heard my uh, my kids in the hallway outside. Of course, I'm, we're coming to you in the time of COVID. And, uh, you know, our homes are now I, what do people say? I don't work from home. I live, live at, at work. work. Yeah, that's <laughs> um, a classic. <laughs> and it's, yeah. And I mean, I've been, because we've been working remote, the Guardian Project for a very long time. And even before then, I, I did that. Um, but yeah, it's different now. And also things like funding and projects and well, yeah, I mean, there's ways to break this down. Obviously how, how is, how is the life of the worker changed now, but maybe us, I mean, how is like, you know, people have been concerned about, uh, well, yeah, there's many ways I'm looking at this. I'm, I'm so happy we were able to get this work funded uh, by Google, no less. Um, where do you think, kind of, you know, and keeping this like real as people. I mean, we want to do more with this project. I want this to get more funding from sources that make sense, that are ethical themselves, that respect what we're doing with open source, that, you know, unions and workers will be happy about. Like, how do we, how did you, how do you feel like we should go about supporting this kind of work research innovation collaboration when we don't have a business model per se and we're not using advertising and no. doing all the things we disdain yeah i mean one i think one of the the lessons learned on that side from from the current lab that we've been running right is there's a there's a large degree of institutional inertia you know we have to work on how is what we are thinking to develop how does it meet the needs uh, of the unions, but also their members, of course, the workers out there. And how do we communicate that? How do we, you know, market, and um, you can't see me, of course, but inverted commas in the air here, how do we market the app so that people can see that it empowers them? You know, it's not use this app to empower us because, as you said, Nate, this is not a product, it's not a business, this is open source. So I think there's a lot that needs to be done on the communication. There's a lot that needs to be done in building, you know, the the routine habit of using a tool like WeClock uh, as, as a natural part of uh, union campaigning, organizing, uh, <laughs> data storytelling, you know, public relations and so forth. But I think, you know, with everything, and I had this fascinating conversation with with the uh, with um a friend the other day is how do you reach the tipping point faster? How do we get enough people excited and on board about this that suddenly it's like an avalanche, more and more people take it up? And and, and that's, I think, it's going to be our task the next months, six months, year here, is to get uh, to get that snowball, so to speak, rolling. 
And and Johnny, I mean, you as a storyteller uh, and filmmaker and connected with youth, but also with data science, and you connected us with some fantastic folks um, through this process, particular um, Dan, which we can talk about. I mean, how do we, I, I don't know. I just remember that moment when we saw this first slide um, of, you know, we clock data overlaid with like COVID data and, and it was kind of these aha moments of, or kind of, co- you know, realize, wow, our G- GPS is so fine resolution and timing that we could show, you know, co-, co sort of workers maybe in a space too long together. How far can we take that? And is that, you know, it, is it science or storytelling, I guess? And like, what is your thought on using that to, reach the tipping point faster? It's a good question. Um, I mean, I am primarily a historian of science, so I'm very interested in those subjects. I study the history of artificial intelligence, or have been for the last few years, four or five years. And, um, you know, I think the question about the the limits of where this could go, um, there's many different ways to interpret what... um, the tool does so the tool is of practical value we we've we've had we're having that conversation it's also a symbolic value about the sort of world we want to live in and um on that side on the storytelling side um i think it's an important reminder that uh things could be different um that you know the same data interpreted by different values leads to different outcomes um you know the data exists today already in, in private stores in with large corporations to tell you who, you know, the amount of hours you've likely worked, let's say pre pandemic, the, the amount of hours you spent in your office, like somebody knows that uh, if, if you were running a smartphone with a GPS, you, you know, in your pocket. Um, um, but the hope I think, and the, the fine line we've walked here um those two things I'll do I'll look at separately. The first, the hope is for me uh, to set up sort of like a reverse Taylorism. Um, so Taylor uh, Taylorism is the kind of the scientific management movement. It's, you know, started in the late 19th century looking at, you know, how does a, how does a, someone working at a factory move, you know, what is the actual way they move their shovel lifting coal from here to here? And how could we improve the way that happens. So they study workers' movements and then kind of turn humans into pieces of a, of a broader machine. And that can become punishing quickly, uh, even more punishing than, than, um, uh, uh, than, you know, just poor work conditions because it disciplines you to have to fulfill micro targets. And we see this today in like the Amazon, uh, uh, you know, fulfillment centers where people uh, have to wear, purportedly diapers you know because the the time that that would have been allotted for them to go to the bathroom is so um, uh kind of um unfairly over measured that it becomes um punishing and with we clock it's saying well you know we can measure uh, work too uh you know and we can analyze work too and and i want to give a shout out to a group in oregon um called driver's seat who have done uh, exactly that with a similar sort of uh, uh, technique to to we clock um, uh, ours is uh, I, I see the two projects as um, meaningfully 
uh, entangled. Uh, and they, you know, with rideshare drivers, um, co-op of, of rideshare drivers in Oregon can look at the work patterns of these Lyft and Uber drivers and say, okay, uh, you know, the, the app has sent you in these directions today in these neighborhoods. Uh, but according to our data of where other people are working and how much money other people made, we recommend you work in these neighborhoods and you work at these times of day. And it's sort of like an adversarial attack on the algorithm, which fascinates me thinking about the, how, uh, you know, that very technique is used in machine learning to, to have these amazing outcomes when you have two models, two algorithms compete uh, to, to find an optimal balance. That's how you get like synthetic faces and stuff, synthetic imagery. And uh, to bring us to a close, I just think at the, at the dream, that 10,000 foot view to kind of heighten the labor movement's ability to, to empower the labor movement for this particular technological change and let them uh, refine the techniques that are being uh, put onto workers, um, I hope will lead to a world in which we work uh, only at the in the ways that we have to, and we don't kind of uh, concede to a world um, in which we allow so many people to suffer needlessly uh, in in a world of kind of artificial scarcity, where uh, income uh, inequality has led to some some uh, unsustainable practices, to say it mildly. And I love the idea that these are we clock is just a new technique in organizing in nonviolent, you know. Uh, or resistance and civil disobedience of a type um, saying, okay, when, when your adversary is AI backed, then you need data tools to do the same kind of resistance. So instead of a work stoppage or slowdown or march or banner hang or letter campaign, we've got a data campaign. And this is a tool to do that. Driver's seat and others are, are using that. And that's really, you know, being able to help invent a new campaign tool is really you know, moving honestly, um, in, in so much of my life has been built around these different techniques, um, that successful movements have used. And I feel like we're, yeah, trying to not only kind of dream up one, but make it available as like a common thing that any group can adopt, be they a formal union or not. Yeah. But Nate, can I add something there as the non-techie here? And that is, I don't think the general population are aware of how much of the news they see, the advertisements they see, or the ones they don't see, the, the, their Twitter feed, their LinkedIn, their Facebook, whatever, how much of it is the result of complex algorithms, mm. right? And how much of yeah. the news in the newspapers are driven by data <laughs> visualizations and so forth, which... You know, all of us who are working in this, we understand the biases, the discriminations, the problems, and so on. But this this is a nerdy world that that is, as of yet, has not penetrated into the general population's awareness. And this is also something we have to remember with Weeklog, that, that, you know, we have to sell it on both the things that Johnny and you are saying, which I totally agree with, but also you know, which we have done in our branding and marketing, you know, hey, worker, you, you know, wage theft is a multi-billion dollar crime. You're probably subject to it. Well-being, I mean, the stress, the mental health pressure, the even more now when unemployment is rising, then the exploitation of the workforce will rise too. We know that through history. So, so it's this both and, it's a push and a pull. 
And we're right now on this seesaw, but we have to sort of balance out the two, I think. And we mustn't forget to bring the population you know, into this insight, like my mind was open, these new windows were opened in my brain. Uh, we also need to, to do so uh, with a good dose of criticism um, in general. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I, I think the first like union oriented tech thing I did was in 2000, around 2004 with SEIU doing like text messaging, right? And there was like, oh, all these workers, they don't have computers at work, but they have their flip phones and they can get text messages. And in the U.S., they couldn't send text messages, but they could get them. And like, what can we do with this? And it's like, oh, get out the vote, you know, and we can do this. And and that seemed like radical then, you know, <laughs> um, and we figured out a way to do it affordable. And, you know, and I'm if it takes 20 years to get to something like the full vision we have for Reclock, right, with more sharing of data and being able to pull together alerts related to health, um, you know, uh, exposure people have and really have organizations using building their own campaigns and getting the data they need and having it be ephemeral. Like this is, you know, we're on a path here that is, you're right. There's, there's a lot of education and awareness and, and work to do to kind of make this something that seems possible and, accessible um and and not just um a distraction because technology can be a huge distraction of course um and i we own that we understand that you know and i think we're, we're keeping our eye on the ball and we really yeah we just want to you know i think i think the the more the formal unionized industries are important and to keep empowering them in the right way the 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 the, the unions themselves, but you know, the fact that uh, gig workers, more and more of us know have people in everyday lives who are depending on gig work. Um, and, um, that, that this is a new thing as well. And, you know, and we just want our, the data to be in the, in people's hands to use. And, you know, the, the, the geeky thing I'll, I'll, I'll end my last comment. Then if you guys want to share, you know, I, we, there's a, there's always this vision of, kind of the Google Skynet and the evil AI and taking over the world and um, the robots coming for us. Um, but that's often easily counterbalanced by other pop culture of, you know, Star Wars where, you know, R2-D2 and C-3PO are beloved as little helpful, friendly robots that help the rebels, you know, win every time, you know? And, and I think those, uh, that's the technology that I'm building, uh, in little R2-D2s that, that just kind of, <laughs> Uh, and they're also it. ephemeral. If you don't, between the different Star Wars movies, they, our, C-3PO and R2-D2 seem to forget everything that they've seen. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> they show up and they're like, yeah, I totally know who Darth Vader is. It's Anakin Skywalker. Like, they don't know that. They, their brains have been wiped. And yet they're still useful in the next movie, you know. So <laughs> that's how, uh, you know, that's what I think again. But but again, I'm, I more think in this uh, project about the real people I know out there who are, either, you know, driving an Uber or are picking garlic in Gilroy, California, or, um, you know, working in a hospital. Yeah, I think we got, um, we, um, yeah, Johnny. I'll just throw in the, you know, I think ultimately with this project, the, 
the best thing we can do, I think, in the near term is just to help workers tell their own data, their own stories and allowing them to do it in data adds a bit of, um, uh, you know, just makes legible things that might otherwise go unheard. Uh, and that could be in the press, that could be to colleagues, uh, that could be to their employer. Um, and them telling those stories, I think, is the the ultimate win that, um, you know, whatever ambitions we collectively have for it, that the idea is that these, these stories are just not being heard currently. You know, I think that, that the internet unfortunately is putting a greater and greater distance between your, you and your neighbors, um, or maybe not your neighbors, that people are suffering in ways that are just un, unacknowledged by the elite. And, um, and so helping people, say this is how bad it is and i i you, you've mentioned a few points like hoping that we're not making things worse and we we are trying to keep attuned to that as well to make sure that we're not kind of substituting anecdotal experiences for data experiences and, and marginalizing people that don't aren't used to working in these languages in these kind of digital formats but you know it's it's having a really like yeah for all the reasons we've talked about it's having a really positive response so far and unions that we are partnered with have gotten very excited about uh their strategy you know about changing work and and trying to incorporate some of these tools uh like you said the the the, the c3po uh sort of mentality and so i'm optimistic as well but just wanted to to throw that in there well, so we are, uh, we have a RightsCon tech demo. Um, if I get this podcast out today, we'll see. Um, but uh, we're getting the word out. WeClock.it website is fantastic and has links to all the tangible things to learn exactly what WeClock can do in the code, in the union kits, in the, you know, all of the things we're doing and tweeting and, and, and blog posts we're putting up soon. So it's all there for the folks and I'm, I'm so proud and uh, enjoyed this work and we'll continue it so I know we've got to get going but uh, thank you for your time hopefully for listeners this gives you a little insight into the kind of collaborations we have part of the project somebody is fell by the way and the life has gone out with the tide that might have been happy someday That's a picture from life's other side Now the first scene is one of two brothers Their paths in life differently led One lived in luxury and riches And the other one begged for his bread One night they met on the highway your life, sir, one cried Then with his knife Took his own brother's life That's a picture from life's other side Now the next scene is down by the river A heartbroken mother and babe In the harbor light glare See them shiver Outcast that no one will save 
once she was a true woman, somebody's darling and pride. God help her, she leaps, there's no one to weep, that's a picture from life's other side. Picture from life's other side.